0: CHAPTER Four, DEANSGATE DENS Before dealing with the criminal population which finds its home in the neighbourhood of Deansgate, it may be as well to give some idea of the number of convicts on licence and under police supervision in the city. By the courtesy of the Chief Constable, I am enabled to quote the return for the year ending the twenty-ninth of September last. From this it appears that 183 convicts on licence and 166 under police supervision, or a total of 349, have been within, what may be termed, direct control during the past 12 months. Of those on licence, about one in every three was a woman, while among those under supervision, the sexes were nearly equal, there being 92 males and 74 females. Out of the total of 349, only 27 had been transferred to Manchester from other districts, so that we may claim the other 322 convicted felons as our exclusive property. Of the whole number, only 176 remained in the city at the date of the return, the remainder having disposed of themselves, or having been disposed of by the authorities in various ways. For instance, 29 had been convicted for new offences, 21 had not reported themselves at all, 55 had removed or been transferred to other police districts, and the licences of 35 others had expired. Of those under supervision, 26 had been punished for neglecting to report. Only seven licences had been entirely revoked, and this proves how admirably the system of releasing men on ticket works where the local police machinery is sufficiently powerful to keep the most dangerous criminals in awe. As I have before stated, the Deansgate district is an extensive one, comprising the majority of the smaller streets running at right angles from the main thoroughfare between Bridge Street and St. John Street, and many others of the narrow alleys on the opposite side of the street. Under the guidance which had safely initiated me into the mysteries of Charter Street, I sought to gain an insight into the life which hides itself in perhaps our closest and most uninviting courts and choosing a Saturday night for my visit, I saw sufficient to sicken and dismay the most ardent philanthropist that ever studied social economy. Upwards of a hundred houses did I enter, upon various excuses, and it would be impossible to describe each in detail. They had many features in common, and the type of misery and debasement presented by their inmates was generally the same. The distinctive characteristics were in the individual, and not in the mode of living. The following were the principal streets I first of all made acquaintance with, and to some of them I will later on refer more intimately. Wood Street, Spinningfield, Dolefield, Wilmot Street, Hardman Street, Royton Street, and Thompson Street. There are very few registered lodging-houses in this neighbourhood, as the tenements are mostly small two-storey cottages, in which three or four men and women live with their children, if they have those encumbrances and in which the co-operative spirit is largely exercised, for existence is merely of a hand-to-mouth kind. They are mostly thieves of the lowest order, though many clever pickpockets are also turned out, and the place is a very hotbed of social iniquity and vice. To deal with this latter phase of crime is hardly possible in articles of this nature, but so intimately is the called social evil connected with actual offences against the law that it is difficult to dissever them, This assertion is particularly applicable to the Deansgate neighbourhood, as perhaps is only too notorious. The women are of a class whose degradation is utter, and whose reclamation as a body is an absolute impossibility. They only commit theft when detection is practically unable to reach them, and their chief victims are drunken men, and country at flas, backslang, flats or greenhorns, whom they pick up, rob and rifle pockets, with perfect impunity, the amount of property thus stolen in twelve months, and of which the police are never made cognizant, is enormous. I shall not further touch upon an unpalatable subject, and my only apology is that the ground is considered too dangerous to be circumstantially mapped out for the benefit of the common public. In Wood Street we were arrested by the sound of music proceeding from what looked like an old beer-house, and on entering we came upon a party of a dozen youths and girls, assembled in a half-furnished room, which resembled a tap-room, listening to a hurdy-gurdy man grinding out a lugubrious waltz, and a red-faced girl, with a glaring red shawl over her shoulders, shaking a tambourine. The audience was a small one, but there was enough dirt and old clothes among them to stock a marine-store dealer. They were altogether more disreputable-looking than the denizens of Charter Street, The women were all bareheaded, save the strata of cheap oil and the dust of weeks which covered their hair, and the men were in a chronic state of tight-fitting cloth caps and large party-coloured mufflers. Peter, the master of the house, was out, and it was not until I had passed into an inner room that I was aware that I was not in a public house. I fully expected to come across a bar, but only met a woman with a child in her arms, who looked weak and sickly. I learned that the premises had once been licensed, but they had suffered disestablishment some time since. The remnants of their old glory were visible in the presence of innumerable gaudy paintings on the walls, representing subjects the most diverse. Once I was confronted by Caxton pulling a proof with his first rude machine from his wooden type, and in another second I started on discovering two or three pugilistic celebrities in a remarkably airy undress, sparring at me from their tinsel frames. It was as if the spirit of the place dumbly appealed to the inmates not to forget its ancient name and fame, but these are already things of the past, and the short span that marks a generation in these infamous quarters will blot them out altogether. Coming out of this queer habitation, we passed down the street until opposite a huckster's shop lighted by an oil-lamp stuck among various comestibles in the window here a middle-aged man who looked like a coster was cursing a woman seated at the side of the fire in the choicest billingsgate she answered him now and again with a sneer which only enraged him the more and seeing us he made a direct appeal out of sheer inability to cope with her tongue look here she says she'll have me pinched locked up for kicking "'and yet she's broken a plate on me head. "'She'll be pinched, not me!' "'This was screamed out at the top of his voice "'with an expletive between every third word, "'and as he finished, he savagely smashed the pieces "'of the broken plate that were lying on the floor. "'There was a mark on his forehead, "'and it was clear that he had been struck with something, "'and that very recently. "'We left him literally breathing vengeance, "'and we could hear the row going long "'after we were out of sight of the shop.' Several other interiors came under my notice that were of a far superior class, many indeed being as snug as they could be made. Pictures, in more than one instance, completely covered the walls, leaving scarcely a trace of the paper visible, and in one living-room, where the ceiling was so low that my hat almost touched it, a handsome parrot in a gorgeous cage was quietly roosting. The pictures in these domiciles were a study in themselves. And it would be interesting to trace the causes that led to their purchase. Exciting battle scenes, stirring scenes by sea and land, are easily accounted for by the strange love for the terrible that is inherent among the lowest and most brutal. Scriptural subjects, saints with the golden glory round their holy brows, the Madonna with her infant child, the crucifixion and resurrection, are only what might have been expected in this other dwelling peopled by Roman Catholics. But other pictures are far more puzzling. The portrait of the Prince of Wales, for instance, representing him as a rosy-cheeked young man, with incipient moustache and whiskers, in a military habit, is an especial favourite, and I was continually encountering it. Not a single portrait of Her Most Gracious Majesty Victoria did I observe, and yet her eldest son was everywhere visible. Whatever induced these outcasts and offenders against the laws of God and man to adorn their walls with the likeness of England's future king, I know not, unless the money was invested to obtain a good property, for the frames were all of pretty solid construction. After a chat with Lizzie O'Neill, whose husband, Big Jack, is waiting for sessions, and a look into Johnny the Kid's house, we dropped into the residence of Fat Anne, where half a dozen collier lads from Wigan were enjoying themselves. Some rude attempt was being made at a song by a half-drunken girl, but two or three of her companions drowned her voice by their incessant quarrelling. These colliers from a distance are a feature of these haunts on Saturday nights, and I saw at least fifty of them during the evening in various cribs. They are cleaned out of all the money they think fit to spend, and when they refuse to part with more They are occasionally bundled out into the street, a row is created, and any portable property they may have on them, in the shape of scarf-pins, watches and loose cash, is quickly transferred to other owners. As a precaution they generally go in threes and fours, and profiting by experience, and of late by their improved system of purring, they can defy any of the coshers, bullies, who may attempt to molest them. Some of these colliers were mere boys, and their stunted growth and the unhealthy look about their shrewd pale faces showed the viciousness of their lives. They were all clogged, and not a few had brass tips on the sharp wooden toes that would have told fearfully in an up-and-down fight. They had nothing to recommend them in appearance or speech, and were only one remove above the class they were temporarily associating with. Fat Anne's neighbour was Lisa Lanky, Lancashire, who deserves some little notice. Stepping into her front room, direct from the street, I saw a big unwieldy woman sitting on an old sofa with her elbow on the small round table that stood near her. There was a strong smell of whisky pervading the room, and I perceived that her head was bound round with a wet cloth. She threw herself back on the sofa, and the action disclosed her features, which were bloated and swollen, and bore marks of many a brutal blow. She seemed morose and savagely discontented, and a more forbidding face I have seldom seen. The damp bandage over her forehead, with the wet trickling down her temples, only made the thick bushy eyebrows and prominent cheekbones more striking, and the dishevelled hair and dress completed the picture. A man came in from a back kitchen with another bandage, and the smell of whisky was explained, as he told us, "'That he thought whisky good for a bad head.' She sulkily snarled out that it was, and subsided into her ill-humoured apathy once more. A labouring man with a wooden leg was resting upon another sofa, and it was evident he was a stranger from the alarmed look he kept casting upon the woman. Who he was and what he wanted in such company I did not take the trouble to inquire. Leaving Lanket to her novel cure for headache, the outward application of alcohol to counteract its inward effects, we made tracks without further delay. End of part four.